We really pick them, we train them what is investing, what to look for, what are the parameters we work in, how to work with investors, how to analyze properties, and so on. So when they, the realtor starts working with our investors, they're already been trained, and I shadow them for a while until they, I see that they're, they can you know, uh, um, uh, take care of, their, of the transaction. This is Passive Wealth Strategies for Busy Professionals. Thank you for tuning in. I'm your host, Taylor Lote. For those of you that are new to the show, I'm a multifamily real estate investor, a syndicator, and a certified busy person. Today, we're going to talk about boring ways to invest in real estate. And big surprise, the boring ways are usually the most reliable ways to invest in anything, especially real estate. Our guest, Danny Baitor, is going to tell you about how he invests in real estate and how he helps his clients invest in real estate in the United States from all over the world. He has investors within the United States and outside of the United States who passively invest with him. And we're going to talk about the systems, processes, and the criteria that he's set up to help identify properties, take them down, operate them and just generally kill it in the boring real estate investing world. This is a fun interview. I hope you enjoy the show. Without further ado, here we go with Danny Bator. Danny Bator, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Nice to uh, to do it from the to, uh, coastlines. Yeah, yeah. We're crossing the country here for our conversation. So before we get into the topic, can you tell our listeners about your background and what you do? Absolutely, uh, with pleasure. So um, again, my, my name is uh, Danny Bedor. I'm, I'm based in California. Uh, if you have a very uh, good hearing, you can probably detect there's a, an accent in my, in my voice. Probably many of you don't, uh, but originally I'm from Israel. I was born in Israel, raised in Israel. Um, you know, spent uh, the uh, mandatory three years uh, in the Israeli Special Forces. Um, then I started uh, once I finished my my military, which is uh, a gig, uh, which is three years for boys, for men. I did my got my uh, industrial management engineering degree also in Israel. And after I graduated, I graduated from school. I started working for the Israeli high tech. And very early on, I realized something is off with the rat race formula. I didn't even know to call it rat race at the time. Um, but, uh, you know, only after I, when I moved here, I, I found the term. But I just couldn't uh, agree with the fact that uh, my parents, my, my uncles, their friends, all their cousins, all working, you know, um, those long hours. Uh, Jobs. I, my dad was military. I barely saw him. My mom had two jobs. You know, middle class family, two jobs. I barely saw them. I, I was a what you what you call a latch a latchkey kid, uh, pretty much uh, six days out of the week. Um, and when I started my adult life, I felt that this is not what I wanna. This is not what I wish for myself. I didn't know what the answer is. I, I just acknowledged to myself that the default of going and doing this for the next 10, 15, 20 years. And I only had a girlfriend today. She's my wife. You know, no family at the time beyond just the two of us. But that formula didn't, uh, I didn't, didn't agree with me. And that kind of put me on a quest. Start, you know, start looking for 
something else. I can't even, at the time, couldn't even tell what it is. It eventually brought me to real estate, U.S. real estate. But at the time in Israel, I was mainly working on one end. And then after uh, working hours, going and attending classes and reading and trying to both educate myself about real, real life finances um, on one hand, and also finding a way how some young guy, engineer, starting his adult life, not a lot of money there to begin with, can do something in order not to be on that path of just work, 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 maybe get a house with a mortgage and, you know, because I could tell, I could see my parents, they, the first time they got their, I don't want to say financial freedom, but got a relief, probably was in their, either their 50s or mid 50s even, when one of the mortgages was paid off and, and their salaries kind of eventually over years went up. And that was the first time I could really see they're taking a breather at 50. And I'm like, no, 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 something. I don't know what the answer is, but that's not the answer. So I couldn't agree <laughs> with it. And I just, that put me on a, kind of really motivated me to start this quest of finding something. I did realize one thing is that I don't know, I couldn't find, or I didn't know at the time, any get rich quick kind of a formula or schemes. I just couldn't find. And I very early said, okay, if I can't find the, I, I don't know how, or I can't find the get rich quick kind of a path, I might as well not follow that and waste time and energy over it. But I want to find the one that it's a get rich flow kind of a path. And I started, you know, investing a little bit in stocks and options, um, which I didn't really relate to because I felt the risk is relatively high and the reward is relatively low for the risk. And I was a young guy. I had no problem with it, a good salary. But it just didn't, you know, uh, it didn't work, you know, it didn't work well for me, the risk reward kind of a correlation there. But while I was on this, on this journey, I was uh, uh, went to a lecture about uh, someone who talked about U.S. real estate, investing in U.S. real estate, in single-family homes, in different suburbs, you know, of the, uh, you know, according to a certain kind of way, and that's where I kind of felt like, okay, this is me. This is good for my risk tolerance. This is good for probably the budget I need to scrap, but probably for the budget with a, with a mortgage. Um, you know, it kind of told me this is simplistic enough for me to to do, and there's a, probably a very high potential. Little did I know, I think, you know, in retrospect, that's 15 years ago, it's actually 17 years ago uh, that I started, uh, how correct I am. But at the time, it just looks, looked okay. It didn't really, <laughs> you know, it, I didn't know it would be okay. It, it is okay, but it takes time to really build the confidence that it works. At the time, it just seems to be on paper the right path. And that's what got me started with buying, you know, uh, uh, my first house in 2002 in a suburb of a, you know, of a city. You probably never heard the name. It's called Phoenix, Arizona. I'm sure you never heard about it. <laughs> right. You know, never. A hole in the desert. Six million people call this hole home, but you know, hole in the desert. Uh, you know, suburb of Phoenix. A nice community very much cookie cutter, you know, nothing spectacular. I mean, no, nothing flashy. It's a nice house, probably about 1,600 square feet or so. It was four two, two car garage. When I drove the, the street for the first time, I actually had the picture and the address, but all the houses looked the same. I, I probably drove by the house only realizing <laughs> I went a little bit too far, 
drove you know a little bit back and say okay this is the one because you just can't can't tell they all look very much the same but i love it i mean i, I think that's uh that i call it the most boring real estate you could probably buy and uh i loved you know doing it and i bought it sight unseen from israel um completely remotely you know 2002 google was a startup no zillow no bigger pockets no facebook you know no google maps at the time us old timers uh were using MapQuest, by the way um you know all those tools that are available and are disposable online today I, i'm jealous of people who start they can get so much done online today back then it was just a piece of paper and an address and a price and that's how we got that's how it got started yeah great so uh, that leads you to today. Uh, what are you doing in your business? How many units do you have? You know, where are your investments now? What are you up to? So today, um, uh, you know, I've, the, my core business is actually everything I have done myself as an investor is I've done it myself, but also laid out tracks for other investors to follow exactly the same tracks. I work with others, helping them to accomplish exactly what I'm doing myself. So I'm doing personally as an investor, but I also work with others to help them, you know, run the same tracks. Um, and that means we have, uh, I set up, uh, you know, operations in different parts of the country. Operation usually means um, primarily realtors and property managers on the ground in all those cities. For example, the Metro of Dallas, the Metro of Houston, Metro Nashville, Metro Kansas City, Tampa, Orlando, those are the, the uh, Indianapolis, those are the active ones. Um, over the years, that changed. Uh, we started uh, several months ago in Kansas City, um, Nashville three years back, you know, Dallas Houston many years ago, Phoenix and Orlando have been in and out already twice. I'm actually waiting for my, uh, uh, my, my, my third, I call it my third tour. You know, it's all about numbers. Yeah, when you go mm -hmm. to an area like Phoenix, you know, in 2004, it was in you know cheap and the rents were high, and that's the the basic here. Um, and then it, you know, with with the, with the, with the boom that we had, it went through through the roof. Then the numbers stopped working. Uh, we pulled out after the crash. We came in really again even cheaper than before. Number numbers worked for a while. Then the numbers stopped working in Phoenix, so we pulled out. Same in Orlando, Tampa. Things changed. Over the years, I've been in multiple metros. When I say they mention the, the name of the city, I don't mean necessarily Phoenix. It's usually the suburbs. It's usually the good schools. The you know, it's a lower middle class, middle middle class, upper middle class type of areas uh, where you can find what I like to call uh, the most boring real estate you can probably buy. So that's you know what we're going to talk about today is making money by investing in the most boring real estate and yeah. how that can impact your life. And yeah, that's a interesting way of putting it, investing in the most boring real estate. So can you drill down for us, what does boring real estate mean to you? Absolutely, absolutely. So uh, for me, the way I see it is this. Um, real estate is a great tool. I believe that real estate, rental properties, if, if bought correctly, is a great vehicle for slow growth, financial growth. Like, like, I, like I said, you know, at the beginning, it, it loves time. It loves, you know, you got to be patient. 
It's especially powerful when you do it with a mortgage. If you have those qualities, if you're willing to wait, buying rental properties is a great way to impact your future, financial future, not tomorrow, not next year. You know, you may be lucky and along the way and some some boom happens. I don't I don't build on that. You know, that's just a, a bonus when 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 we actually own something. Um, at the same time, we can buy and there's a, and a crash. So I don't want to build on that. I just want to build a very steady, easy, long-term uh, uh, growth of real estate, especially done by um, you know by, with a, with a mortgage that really helps accelerate that. A lot of the people, you know, everybody's busy, right? I know a guy who lives in Richmond who is a certified busy person. That's yourself. I love that term. <laughs> I love it. I, I think I'm gonna steal it from you from now on. Hopefully you're, you're okay with it. Um, I'm a certified, um, self-certified. I'm actually applying for certification with you, a busy person as well. A lot, we all between jobs, uh, our job, our family, our lifestyle, we all run busy lifestyle. And to find ourselves dealing with real estate, it's something that it's hard to do. Um, and then many people live in parts of the country that the real estate is expensive. So either it's unaffordable or even if it's an affordable, the cash flow just, you know, is really poor, you know, if, if to say cash flow at all. So the point, the, the, the whole point is how do I, the busy guy from Silicon Valley, the busy guy from New York, you know, or, or, or Boston, or that, you know, especially in areas where real estate is expensive, can buy real estate and not deal with it. Right, the day to day, um, and the simple answer is I don't think there is a, a, a completely 100% buy and forget. But I'm aspiring for you know the concept that I go after for my investors and myself. I'm no different. Is that let's aspire for buy and forget. For me, buy and forget. Let's buy the type of real estate that will create as little noise as possible in our lives, so we can continue with our lifestyle, jobs, kids, family, traveling, whatever without much interference. And I'm saying, emphasizing, it's not zero interference, it's just minimize, minimize, minimizing noise. And finding that boring type of real estate, usually it's the American dream. The American dream is the nice single family home, you know, many times with the white picket fence, not always, in a nice community, it's usually in good school districts that are usually located in the suburbs. Um, and they typically attract in good schools, in good areas, attract the, the renters that can afford to pay uh, the rent and you know, not, you know, not, do not necessarily live paycheck to paycheck and afford to, to, make, to pay the rent. Usually the type of people that would even have uh, a pride of rentership. So they tend to take reasonably good care of the house. I'm not saying that it's perfect. And, and we use a local property manager. You know, we, we've spent a lot of time finding those really good property managers on the ground that can take 95% of the ongoing noise from the investor, uh, whether that person is busy or spoiled, you know, the investor, someone else on the ground takes care of most of the, of the noise. And that gives you, the investor who lives in an expensive area, say New York or San Francisco or, or LA, the ability to purchase a boring piece of real estate with a nice tenant in the suburb of Nashville. Okay, for $150,000, $200,000, give or take, right? And you only need to come up with 20 to 25% down, you know, in order to buy it. So you don't even need to have, you know, $200,000. You can have $40,000, $50,000 in order to, to buy it with a mortgage. And that piece of property in that type of area with schools and community 
and uh, and the type of tenants for the most part will generate very little noise you will have some vacancies you will have repairs you will once in a, you know maybe seven years on average you will have an even even ten even good tenants run into bad times um, when you use property manager you're dealing with people there's going to be miscommunications along the way or misunderstanding it will happen but when that happens relatively 95% of the ongoing noise is dealt you know the property manager is dealing with you the owner even if you live in Europe, I have investors that I work with who live in Europe and they own real estate, but they get to know that there is a repair and they're just being informed or the house is sitting vacant between tenants and sometimes it takes a month, sometimes it takes two weeks, sometimes even a month and a half, and then there's a turnover, people on the ground taking care of everything, um, and you can actually benefit from that. You gotta be patient. Usually when people buy a piece of real estate like this, a year later, if they check the numbers, Maybe they go on Zillow and do the Zestimate. It may look a little bit better. It's not really, you know, something you can measure a year or two later. Usually three years later, it's like, oh, something interesting is happening here. It's generating a little bit of a cash flow, maybe $200 or so every month after everything. And it appreciated a little bit, didn't even go crazy, but just went up in value. So all of a sudden you see that you're gaining financially, even if you're not really feel it in the day to day, after three years, usually when like it clicks, like, oh, something is happening. And then you ask yourself, how much of a noise, how much am I dealing with it on an ongoing basis? Typically with us, the answer would be very little, not zero, but little. Uh, and we provide a lot of support to those people. So even when they get to the point that there's some challenges, some misunderstandings, some miscommunications, they always can call us and say, hey, I purchased this house with you two years ago. And the property manager is not responding. Can you talk to them? Or they told me this, they told me that, or the house is sitting vacant. And we just make sure on the top of everything, we provide additional layers of support. Because we know those, you know, we, we know it will have noise. We know everybody has a different, you know, uh, uh, patience level or tolerance for issues. Some can deal with the little things. Some very quickly give up. We step in, we solve those problems. We come from a buying power position, so the property managers really love us because we give them a lot of work. Um, uh, realtors, they love us because we give them a lot of work. We, we handpick <laughs> those people. We don't work, work randomly with people. Realtors we work with, we really pick them, we train them what is real estate investing, what to look for, what are the parameters we work in, how to work with investors, how to analyze properties, and so on. So when they the realtor starts working with our investors, they're already been trained, and I shadow them for a while until they I see that they're they can you know uh, um, uh, take care of the of the transaction. And I'm still I'm always involved. I speak with them on a, on a bi-monthly basis, always helping them do better, improve, and so on. So it's always an ongoing kind of a system. But the basic core of it is someone who lives in an expensive area with a busy lifestyle. We, we help them facilitate a purchase of a rental property, a nice rental property in, a, in another part of, of the country. 85% of my investors, they buy sight unseen. They don't even travel. Wow. Because. I mean, in this, yeah, I was going to ask you about the, the cash flows in this, but uh, and, you, and you mentioned that, but um, in this process, how do you pick the good markets or the good sub markets from the bad sub markets and then the good deals 
from the bad deals, you know, whether or not something's Absolutely. overpriced, you know, what are your, how are you setting criteria yeah. in so, this world of so boring real estate? I have a, yeah, for, for picking up markets, I have a very clear formula that, that I use and I can tell you what, what it is. It's not a, not a secret, but for me, it's the, it's the following. It's got to be a metro has got to be at least 1.5 million people population wise. That's the number. That's the first threshold. That metro needs to have multiple big employers representing multiple industries. So I check for that. Right. So for example, Vegas can meet the, the, the population criteria, but it's not really meeting the diversification, the business diversification criteria. So for me, Vegas doesn't really work for that reason. There's nothing wrong with it. This is my formula. Right, so markets that are, and I even like to be in a, in a two million, around the two million population and up, and not even 1.5, but that's my threshold. So I gotta check the the population. I gotta check the the uh, uh, what are the major employers and the industry they represent to see their diversification and a good economical base. For an example, um, Austin, really good market. You know, all, all in all, it's a good market metro, but. It's only uh, maybe coming close to about 2 million people population-wise. But, the, for example, a few years back, if, if you remember, Dell was going through some challenges before they, mer they merged with EMC. And the, it's like Dell is the north of Austin, and the area really sensed that. It was like the Austin market was going through a cold. You know, it's kind of like mm. it was sick a little bit. If there was uncertainty. In my opinion, if Dell was a, a, the same Dell was located in Dallas, and the same thing hap, would have happened in Dallas, it wouldn't, you know, it wasn't a cold. Nobody would even bother to notice it that much, right? Maybe Dell people talk about it a little bit more, but probably not as much. Why? Because Dallas is, is, is three times bigger than Austin as a, as a metro. Many big in, in employers, multiple industries. Okay, Dell would just merge. Kind of, you know, uh, uh, merge into everything there. So for me, Austin, as much as I like today, Austin, you know, as a Californian, Austin is great. As an investor, yeah, it's okay. I'd rather go to Dallas and Houston because the numbers, the the the, con the local economies of each is three times bigger, you know, and it, for me, it just it means safer investment, you know, economically uh, based. So that's important too. Uh, you know, I talked about the, the, the size of the population, the employment base, very important. Um, then I like to go to to see the the uh, migration patterns in the U.S. So every year, uh, multiple companies measure migration patterns. If someone wants to look it up, they can, you can look on U-Help. They advertise it. Atlas Van Lines, almost every big, you know, uh, moving company, you know, the ones who do nationwide, they post something about it and they track it and they measure per state how many people in a certain year, how many trucks moved out and how many trucks moved in. And they say, okay, Ohio, there is an out migration of out of mm -hmm. Ohio. For example, California is balanced about the same number of people moved in or I'm just making it up, right? That's not necessarily true, but the same number of people moved in and out of California. Um, you know, uh, uh, Florida, more trucks are moving to Florida. So you see there's a migration patterns in the U.S., and you can actually follow them. If you look a few years back, which I do every year, because uh, those, uh, you know, I, I follow those, uh, those articles, um, you can see that most of the Midwest and most of the Northeast are shrinking, 
mostly the south and the west are increasing in population in demographic changes. Now I'm looking at, like I said earlier, I'm looking at the at the at the long-term buy and hold, five, ten years, maybe fifteen. I want to make sure I'm going to areas that are growing populations and, and jobs in order for to have a, you know a constant flow of buyers and renters or future buyers and future growth that will sustain that long-term hold and will sustain that the probably the price appreciation. So if you follow that trend, that support that long-term trend, that's why I follow that trend as well. So for that reason, I don't really like the markets like the Midwest uh, because a lot of them are shrinking and they're not growing. And that's a problem long-term. We know some of the names for sure, but that's just not just, you know, just, those are the, 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 mostly the names who made the, the headlines. Uh, mm. So immigration patterns are important. The other thing that I'm looking for is I like to go to states that are, how should I say it? Red states, maybe the best way to, to say it. Usually <laughs> red states means the laws are favoring the landlord. And if you have to, if you get to the point of an eviction, usually it's quicker and cheaper. Now for me, that point alone is important. And I always thought that's enough. Actually, maybe two years ago, I realized it's not just that the eviction process is cheaper and quicker. It also sets the, the, you know, the environment for, for those things. So I think ten, tenants, renters in those states, they know they live in a state that the laws are favoring the landlord. So it's mostly already setting the, you know, setting the scene for them not to go into that problem to avoid it to begin with, right? If you live in a state like California or, or, or other blue state and you know the law is on your side, right? Then you have a lot of encouragement to, you know, to, to play dirty tricks in order to stay as, as much as you can in a house. I mean, you'd be inclined. I'm not saying that people will do that, but you might be more inclined to not rush out as, as soon as you can pay the, the rent or solve it, but actually fight it with the, with the owner. And you can actually wipe in California maybe one or two years of, of cash flow with one eviction. So that's not good because it takes can take a month, month, two, three months to get someone out, and it's more expensive. California, as, as an example, um, in Texas, you know, Oklahoma, Florida usually takes anywhere from ten days to a month, depending how busy the courts are at that time, and it costs anywhere from two hundred fifty bucks to maybe six, seven hundred, eight hundred bucks, depending how far you have to take it. You know, the full. Sometimes you have to go to the sheriff and the locksmith is going to cost you a little bit extra, not a lot more, still relatively cheap. But that's another item in the formula going after those states that are lender friendly. Then it's about the numbers, right? I want to be able to buy a $150,000 home, a good, nice, you know, middle, middle class, uh, you know, community, 150-ish, maybe 100,000, maybe 200,000 home and we rent it around the 1% rule, what we call a month. Now the 1% rule is if you buy a house for 150, you want to rent it for 1500 a month. That's the 1% rule. The problem with this rule is that A, there is an erosion because of, of the appreciation of values of properties, there's an erosion of rent. So we don't really see the 1% playing out anymore because prices went up. <laughs> but we see 0 0.9, 0 0.8, so it's close to that. It probably eventually is going to be a correction. The rent will keep up or something will change. But right now, the 1% rule is a little bit tricky. 
And the second thing that some people don't don't know or maybe do but don't realize, some markets don't play in the 1%, never played in the 1% rule. But even if they are at 0.75% instead of 1%, they could still perform very well. Nashville is one of them. So Nashville never had the 1%, but even at 0.75%, I hope I'm not being too uh, throwing numbers and confusing one, is confusing you or whoever listening, but not always the 1% rule works in a certain market. So you have to really look carefully. And lastly, the one thing that I added, I would say about a year, year and a half ago, is I'm trying to stay away from markets with harsh winters. That wasn't always the case, but harsh winters for me means Murphy Law will play into my vacant house in the middle of December <laughs> with the pipe bursting. And that's not, not fun, right? Even if you can have insurance, you can, but that means more costly insurance and that means a hustle and the house sitting vacant. And usually, you know, Usually water damage is the worst damage you can have, you know, with, with, with repairs. So I'm trying to stay with the harsh winter. Uh, even if a market follows everything that I've mentioned, it would be in a, in a, in a cold uh, weather. That's usually something I would probably avoid as well. For example, by the way, most of the harsh cold winter markets are also blue states. So it's actually not a problem. <laughs> <laughs> I hope everybody follows the blue red here, uh, you know, uh, yeah, we're we're we got you. You mean uh, yeah. uh, to be more direct about it? Uh, you mean landlord-friendly laws where you know some areas uh, tenants can get away with effectively not paying their rent or paying like a token amount, and yeah, you know, some some laws are very uh, make it very difficult to make a profit as a property owner. So can definitely appreciate the, that. Yeah, I call it the extended stay. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's good. And then, uh, okay, so the 1% rule is, you know, a lot of folks know about the 1% rule, but if you spend some time, you're looking at deals in the market, either on the MLS or on for, from wholesalers and such, these days, the vast majority of deals that I've looked at, at least, are not going to hit that 1% rule. Right. So you're saying... You can go lower than that, maybe down to 0.75%, something like that, in certain markets and still make money. Exactly. And I think the second part of your question was how do we – so that was how do I decide on, on, a, on, a, on an area, on a metro. That's my formula. The way we decide per property is um, after the crash, I've been, you know, I've been through the, the boom. I've really ridden the, you know, the crash that came after the boom of, you know, of 2007, 8, 9. I was there, you know, in, in the eye of the storm, big time. Uh, maybe not even in the eye of the storm, but you know, in the storm itself. So, uh, you know, uh, it definitely uh, taught me a lot. I came in experienced, not beginner, and I think I came out, you know, truly a, a much more of a professional. Uh, I had to deal all of a sudden with issues that I never thought I, you know, uh, I would get, you know, get to know about. Um, <laughs> no one says that it's crazy, but. Um, one of the things that I came out of the, the one of the things I decided to change is I think I see I tell myself I feel that I was analyzing properties before the you know before the, the crash um, like an amateur not like a professional hmm. and after the and, and it worked I mean everything went up so who cares right but it didn't work right it didn't really work uh, so one of the first thing I did is I created a, a, an Excel 
uh, I would say somewhat of an, on the extensive side that really helps me make a decision, not just me. Today, all the investors I work with use it, all the realtors, it's part of the training, know how to use it. Um, it's not just an analysis Excel, it's more of a, I call it the business plan for the property for the next 30 years. There's definitely assumptions there. But one of the challenges was as investors, sometimes we go from, we obviously don't want to do best case scenario, right? That's just, nobody wants to do that really, obviously. If we do yes. worst case scenario, right? Worst case scenario, what happens is for me is I, I kill every deal, right? So I have a cemetery full of great deals that I didn't do because worst case scenario. <laughs> it's always the worst case. So obviously this, this is me, you know, before the, the crash. And after the cash, I say, okay, this, is, this one doesn't work. This one doesn't work. I need something. And I say, okay, how about I just use what I call, I call it for myself, realistic case scenario, right? I don't know why it took me so long to get to that, but I just use a realistic case scenario to analyze a property, maybe realistic with a touch of conservatism. So I'm not totally on the optimistic side. So just, but not overly worst case. And that Excel plugs in the numbers and the assumptions and analyze a specific property with, you know, for the next 30 years, and then it does periodic averages. Performance, not in the first year. Rental property, if you measure, like we talked earlier, the first year, yeah, it's not gonna say much, right? If I'm gonna hold it for at least five, maybe even 10 years, why am I analyzing on the first year or two years, which doesn't really give me the uh, uh, the, the, the real performance here? So, I'm, uh, so what I decided to do, I'm gonna do periodic averages. I'm gonna look first five years, first 10 years, 15 and 20, and then I take, I, I do an average, how the property is performing based on a five-year performance per year. And that's where I'm shooting, you know, kind of focusing on, and that tells me the story of the property, the financial story, not the equality, but the financial story of the, of the property. And that helps me make a decision, the financial decision. Of course, we want to check on other things like the area and size and age and all of that, no doubt, in schools, but at least on making a decision financially, that Excel is the one thing that I have, I can't make a decision without, I mean, today it's like, a, it's like another arm here. So if you ask me, what do you think about this property? I was like, wait, I gotta put it the numbers. I don't trust myself without going through the exercise of putting the numbers in. It takes me three minutes, five minutes, maybe 15 minutes if I have to collect more data online to put it uh, and get, a, get an answer very quickly. And it's been used for so many years, close to 10 years now, by so many investors and so many, uh, uh, um, you know, situations that I, I also, I'm also trusting the Excel by now because it, it, it's been telling a story for many years. And when I check with my investors, what happened in reality a year later or so versus the Excel, almost always they, they tell me actually the house is performing better. Not tremendously better, but you know, instead of $200 of cash flow, we get 250, we get 300. It's not a lot more, it's not a lot of money per month, right? Just per month, but 100 bucks more on a $200 cash flow to begin with, that's 50% more on the cash flow. That's quite a lot when you talk about those small numbers. So that really something that pleases me. You know, sometimes is people say it even, you know, I, I was planning for 200 and it's actually doing 500, that's fine. That's really the, 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 the better ones. But the fact that the Excel is able to give us a more accurate, realistic financial uh, uh, picture, that really is a good thing. And it plugs in vacancies and repairs and property management and listing fee and HOA if we have and property management. 
and insurance and property taxes, everything that we know realistically, and the rent, and then uh, uh, it, it drives the number, it gives us you know, the ROI, et cetera. So the decision on per house, always done with this uh, tool, at least the financial decision. Mm, yeah, so you're saying staying disciplined with the numbers and you're also learning from past experience and not being overly optimistic or overly pessimistic, Correct. really. Correct. Because you can, you know, if you spend all your time just disqualifying every possible deal, you'll never do anything. So we can't be too afraid of taking a risk at the end yep. of the day. Exactly, exactly. And we may need to look at, uh, even today, you know, I may need to plug, uh, look at 10 properties uh, in order to get one that makes sense. And if it doesn't make sense, we have the discipline. This is what I train the people I work with. We have the discipline to move, either to lower the offer which sometimes, you know, doesn't work, or move on to the next one. That's fine, you know. Real estate has been here for such a long time. What, it's going to take another month or two or three or six to buy? That's okay. That's okay. It's, it's a long play. It's a long play. When you buy quality areas, quality properties, you know, we don't buy old properties. We buy maybe the 30 years is like the oldest, so to speak. We usually buy, you know, even 20-year-old or, or younger houses, and we hold it. And we have the patience. You need a lot. You need patience here. Yeah, it'll be okay. It'll be fine. You know, just, uh, just you know. So no rush. Why are you rushing? You know, why would someone rush into it? Wait. Uh, you know, I have investors like, am I too late? Late for what? You know, you want to <laughs> make a quick buck by by next year? Maybe you're late. I don't know. I have no idea. But if you have the, if you want something that it's more of a working in the background, then this is a really great tool. And if you know how to follow this formula and get to that boring, you know, type of real estate, for me, that's just, uh, you know, great. And I'm always aspiring to be myself more and more, get closer and closer. And I always feel that I make very small, inc you know, uh, uh, increments, but still to the buy and forget. My ideal situation is like, you come to me and say, Danny, I have the money, I can qualify, but I don't want to hear anything about this property once I buy it. And that's for me the ideal scenario that I want to enable someone like you or someone who listens. But honestly, it's just not there yet. Hopefully, I'm sure there, there are ways how to go about it. I'm just not, you know, you know, you can go into a group and syndication and do stuff. I'm just not doing that anymore. But buying by yourself, I'm still always looking for ways to improve that noise level. Always want to turn it even more down if I can. That's the constant. Mm. A constant challenge, let's just put it this way. My, one of my <laughs> constant challenges, yeah. Nice. So we're going to take a quick break for our sponsor. Okay, Danny, I've got three questions I ask every guest at the end of the show. Okay. Are you ready to go? Oh, yes. I hope so. <laughs> I hope so, too. <laughs> First one, what is the best investment in real estate that you've ever made? Um, the how the, you know I'll give, I'll answer with two quick ones because I did two types of investment rental wise I think the house in well the house in Phoenix really did that the first one really did well really did well because it doubled very quickly but actually when I'm answering you I bought a house in Orlando in '95 so it's 13 14 years this house in the 13 14 years that I've owned it I think set vacant combined for maybe two and a half months, maybe three. You know what, maybe four, because I was repairing for, you know, uh, before the last, end, only three tenants. So 
I've always had, it was always occupied, never had anyone late, three tenants, uh, usually tenants who took care of the house, uh, and it did very well. I mean, it's just unbelievable, just 13, 14 years. I think my average cost of repairs is maybe 15 bucks a month over all those years, which is practically wow. nothing. So yeah, well, that's a good story. Um, it's not always like this, but it's definitely a good story after 13 years. A second property, you know, we did a flip. My first flip, bought at the auction in Atlanta for $36,000. I'm just rounding by, by a bit. We sold it 30 days to the date for uh, $90,000 without even lifting a single hammer. Wow. It was just coincidence, uh, you know, with someone who wanted to buy it who was already living there. Uh, long story, but those are the two kind of amazing stories that, that, that I had. When you do stuff like this, those things do happen. I have other good stories, but those like I would say pop up, you know, as the great ones. Yeah. So that first one you said you bought in ninety four, ninety five. So that would be twenty five, twenty four, twenty five. I'm sorry. Years. I'm sorry. No, no. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Two thousand and five. My apologies. Oh, okay. Got, okay. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. No, no. Two thousand and five, September of two thousand and five, and we're you know just getting to the uh, fourteen years, thirteen, fourteen years mark, and okay. Three tenants, you know, like nice. talk about buy, buy and forget. This house is almost that in my in my, <laughs> in my portfolio. Yeah. Nice, nice. Yeah. On the other side of that, what is the worst investment that you've made? Well, the worst investment I made is actually I've done uh, several flips in Indianapolis. That after about eighty, I would say after about eighty flips, which probably seventy of them were anywhere from okay good to excellent uh when i got to indianapolis i was in for a treat that completely threw everything off uh the main uh so uh, a lot of mistakes done there uh in indianapolis with the primarily the local team so that means we lost money on on, on flips that we've done we're still i'm still dealing with it actually i flew in from indianapolis which i go to about every two to three months this morning i flew in at 9 a.m 9.30 a.m. I landed from Indianapolis. Uh, by the way, the, the sun is uh, exactly at your window. And it's kinda, <laughs> for the recording, I don't have a problem with it. Just Sorry there. about the, that. Now I can see, but that's okay. Um, so uh, it's not just a single, a single uh, uh, property. It's multiple flips. All went terribly wrong, primarily because of uh, poor local team selection. The project manager on the ground and the main, main GC. Um, so it's not just one, it's multiple. And I'm, you know, if it sounds like I'm, you know, doing deals and 15 years and, and you know, I had my, my fair share of, of issues when the crash happened, I had my fair share now with the flips going awfully wrong. So it's not all dandy, sweet and easy and no problem. Absolutely. I have scars, mental scars and maybe even some uh, physical scars from working in houses <laughs> uh, and financial scars absolutely you know uh, uh, you know it's got a you know i think it builds the stamina in order to uh, persevere and solve those problems and by the way indianapolis i'm still dealing with it it's not done we're in a much better off position where i was a year ago but it's still you know still being the, you know kind of uh fighting to get it through the finish line so you said the main issue there was related to the team selection and it wasn't a sudden shift in the market or anything like that that uh, changed things for you. Yeah. yeah, it all comes down to two people. 
Primarily one, primarily one, but the secondary as well. Those are, and uh, if if I really strip everything, that's you know um, that's what it comes down to. Team. Teams. Yeah. We've never heard that one before on this show. Uh, I kid. We hear that one all the time. That no, is, uh, I'm sure. I'm sure. Good one to yeah. point out. Sure. So yeah. my my favorite question here at the end of the show. I could just pare it down to this one if I really wanted to. What is the most important lesson that you've learned in real estate investing? You know, I think it exactly comes to where we we're just talking about. Is just uh, take the time to. Uh, to to qualify to vet uh, the teams, uh, I, I probably I can't I can't express it you know uh, enough. Every time I did that, I did it many times in the past. It proven to be okay because the teams performed. And the one time I guess I didn't do it well enough, it blew up in my face so to speak. So mm. I think uh, um, you know you can have a, a mediocre house with a great team. Um, you know that will that will work, but uh, uh, you know an excellent house with with an investment with a with a bad team doesn't matter. But it comes down to really spend the time to vet, to check, you know, to maybe not take people for the word uh, before you decide on on who to work with. Because uh, it's a team effort. You say, I, I, how can I do everything that I'm doing from here from California with people in Nashville, Dallas, Houston? In Orlando, Tampa, Chicago—I didn't say Chicago, Indianapolis. Uh, um, without, you know, what? Uh, am I a superstar? I'm not. I'm just a regular Joe. But great teams in Nashville, great teams in Dallas, great teams, you know, in all those places. Now, good people in uh, Indianapolis—that were most of the issues. Now, finally, absolutely. But it takes time. It takes time mm. to find them. So it really comes down to this. I think this is, uh, you know, be patient. I. Be patient to find the right team, qualify them, vet them before you you, know, you start executing. That will pay off big time, or 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 kill you, so to speak. <laughs> nice, nice. So, Danny, thank you for everything today. Where can our listeners get in touch with you if they want to learn more about your deals? Maybe if they ask real nice, I don't know whether or not you'll give them that Excel sheet that you uh, you yeah. mentioned. I don't know. Where can they reach out to you? Well, um, my, our main blog website is simplydoit.net, simplydoit.net. Um, I put a lot of content, like tons of content. I have a YouTube channel with uh, hundreds of videos, uh, a podcast with many, you know, uh, many uh, uh, sessions, all teaching. If you hear me until now, I think I hopefully I come across not as a sales person, but someone who put out content and quality. I try to do it. Uh, I don't think I'm, I'm you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a good salesperson anyway. Um, so tons of content to teach people, to educate, because those who learn, if they, they can relate, they, they, they will find a way to work with us if they want to. There's no point of convincing or selling or doing all of that. So podcast, um, Facebook, I do a weekly session, a live session of Facebook every Friday. Um, so find me on Facebook. It's Danny Bait, or I spell it D-A-N-I. And my last name is B as in boy, E-I-T-O-R. Danny Bait, or simply do it. Uh, if you just use that, you'll, you'll get to my YouTube, you'll get to the podcast, you'll get to the Facebook. 
Um, I don't know if you put links from your uh, website to help people and just content, tons of con free content. You just, just you know, invest in yourself, uh, you know, uh, as an individual, and that will lead for, for everything else along the way. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Nice. Well, yeah, well, all the links will be in the show notes for sure. So if folks want to just click something, right. be in the show notes, they can click through yeah. there. And uh, I think your your URL is definitely uh, very uh, appropriate for what we're talking about, investing in real estate. It's just simply do it. Maybe you yep. don't know all the steps right now, but it's one step, one foot in front yep. of another, and you'll figure it out. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Great. Well, thanks once again for joining us today and sharing okay. all your... Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. And... Uh... Thank you for uh, leading me through this. <laughs> My pleasure. To everybody right. out there, thank you for tuning in. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating or review on iTunes. It'd be a very big help and much appreciated. If you know somebody who could use a little bit more passive wealth in their lives, please share the show with them and get them involved. Get them into our little tribe here. Once again, thank you for tuning in. I'm your host, Taylor Lote, and we will talk to you on the next one. Bye-bye.